Martin Luther once said, as long as we live, there is never enough singing. While ours is not the most sing-songy of cultures, there are many occasions where only a song will do, even for us. Once a year, happy birthday is going to be dedicated to you. Only once a year is Auld Lang Syne allowed to come out to be heard. If you hear somebody singing it in September, something's gone terribly wrong. If you go to a ball game, you know there's a moment coming there in the seventh inning stretch where bitter rivals will join together to sing about the joys of America's pastime. You know, you don't have to be a baseball fan to enjoy take me out to the ball game if you're there at the park. Sure, you're singing about going to a place where you're already at. And sure, you're singing about a popcorn treat no one actually wants to eat. And sure, you're singing about how you'll never leave the park and that you and all the rest of the crowd are just happy to be found in the stands that day. It may be idealized, but it's just the right song for the time and the setting, right? Dory, everybody's favorite Pacific blue tang, swam into our hearts singing, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. It was that song that not only helped her and Marlon through their many trials in Finding Nemo, but ended up saving the lives of a large school of grouper who were caught in a fisherman's net there at the end of the film. Songs have the ability to cheer our hearts and steal our resolve. They are a wonderful gift uh, from our Lord, who is the initiator and creator of music, of course, but he's also given us songs so that we might sing and so that we might uh, apply these wonderful songs to our hearts. Songs can also help us to remember things that we once learned but have a hard time recalling. If I were to ask you what the capital of New Hampshire was or maybe what the order of the books of the Bible are, a lot of you would probably start scrolling a song in your head, trying to remember the old song you learned in order to get that information in there. In the Psalms, We've seen many kinds of songs that God has given us to sing through life. It's a remarkable thing that out of all the books of the Bible, you know, God has collected in his word all that we need for life and godliness. And what one entire book he gave us was a song book so that we could have songs to sing to him and with one another and to our own hearts as we move through life. And there's all sorts of different psalms, as we've seen and will continue to see. There's songs of hope and songs of praise, songs of sorrow. Songs of frustration, they're given to us by the Holy Spirit, not just so that we can have some sort of emotional vent from time to time, but so that we will learn the heart of God and how to live in closeness to him so that we can learn to calibrate our perspective as we take a look at our lives and take a look at the world around us and try to figure out what is going on. Inside the Psalter, there are 15 songs that are all put together toward the end that were specifically used by Jewish pilgrims on their trips to the temple in Jerusalem three times a year. They're Psalms 120 through 134. They're called Songs of Ascent. Each one of them will have that title in your Bible. And what they were were songs that were meant to be sung by pilgrims who were traveling from wherever they lived Uh, either in the land of Israel or outside the land of Israel, but would be coming to the temple three times a year as prescribed by the Mosaic law. Jerusalem was built up on a hill. And so from wherever you were traveling, you would go up the road, elevating up to Mount Zion until finally you arrived in the temple courts where you would worship God among his people. These songs were meant to be sung on the road as they took their trip. 
Probably the most famous among them is Psalm 121, which we'll look at this morning. You heard it at the start of our service. And when we look at the words and when we hear it spoken to us or sung to us, I mean, this is a song that we sing still today, one of our modern choruses. We may be tempted to say, now, wait just a minute. The Lord's going to protect me from all harm. The sun won't strike you. My foot will never slip. Well, what about the pandemic? What about the fact that we're looking down the barrel of 108 degrees all summer? Those sorts of things. Is this some sort of biblical version of I believe I can fly? Or were the pilgrims just meant to sing something frivolous to pass the time? A sort of, you know, take me out to the ball game for their long stretch from tent to temple. What's the deal? We'll find this wonderful song is neither shallow nor unrealistic. It is, in fact, a precious melody, a gift given to us that we can take with us as we make our own pilgrimage as God's pilgrims from here to heaven. We may not be on our way to uh, the physical Jerusalem in the nation of Israel in the Middle East, but as believers, we are on our way to the new Jerusalem and we are walking through this life. Uh, We are not citizens of the earth any longer. We are strangers and pilgrims, the Bible said, headed home to be with our Lord. A little context might be a little bit helpful. The very first song of a sense is Psalm 120, and it is full of distress. The singer there takes a look around and finds himself among a violent and hate-filled people. He finally comes to the conclusion that he has dwelt too long in this place, so far from God. And so he calls out to the Lord, who is then faithful to immediately answer and set him on his way toward Jerusalem. That's the first song in the pilgrim journey. Some Bible scholars see that as an analogy of the moment that a person finally realizes that they are sinners and that they are stuck in the kingdom of darkness. And so they call out to God for salvation and God does not withhold it. He answers. And then from that moment, the individual begins their long pilgrimage with the Lord. And so our pilgrim, our singer, has made the decision to go And now setting out on his trip, we find ourselves at the start of Psalm 121. It says this in verse one, a song of ascents. I lift my eyes toward the mountains. Where will my help come from? There are several ways to look at this opening verse. What mountains are we looking at exactly? Are we looking at mountains that are standing between the traveler and the land of Israel, the city of Jerusalem as an obstacle? Are we looking at the hills surrounding Jerusalem? Jerusalem is built on a hill, but there are other hills surrounding it as well. Or are we looking at the Temple Mount itself? All three would be mountains that the pilgrims would encounter along the way. And all three have their own sort of implications and bring along with them their own sort of thoughts. Whichever it was, a singer looks up and quickly comes to the conclusion that he needed help, some real help. We'll find he's concerned about the elevation. He's concerned about the elements. He's concerned about potential enemies lurking about. If we're looking at the mountains on the road as if they were the ones standing between the pilgrim and Jerusalem, they would be foreboding indeed. Even if there weren't thieves and robbers hiding in the cliffs or wild animals to contend with, mountain trails are much more hazardous and difficult than those on the level plain. It would be a hard, hard road to take. If we're looking at the mountains as if the hills surrounding Jerusalem, chances are the singer would also then see the pagan shrines on the high places that so often occupied those hills during Israel's history. Stocked with shamans and temple prostitutes, 
They'd be selling themselves and selling charms and potions, promising help and protection. If they would only leave the path and linger for a while, we'll help you with all that you need. Come over here and partake and we'll get you where you want to go. If we're looking at the hill of Jerusalem itself, the site wouldn't be frightening. It'd be encouraging. Okay, there it is. There is the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, as it were. There's the place where he's headed. But even then, the singer does well to focus his attention. Does his help come from the temple building, from the city itself? Where does his help really come from? This song can help calibrate and help him keep himself from making the mistake of the Pharisees there in the Gospels. They were ones who weren't focused on a connection to God himself, right? Uh, or, Or to a living relationship with their creator. Instead, they thought that their city and their traditions and their buildings was what was keeping them safe. The pilgrim must not uh, make the same mistake of Samson, right? Samson let his mind and his morality wander so far that eventually he thought, well, you know where my strength comes from? It doesn't come from the spirit of God. It comes from my long hair. And so the pilgrim here singing the song wants to avoid those mistakes and say, well, where does my help really come from? And so some different perspectives we could find from verse one. The answer to the question, though, comes in verse two. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. No matter who the pilgrim was, what year they were traveling, where they were coming from or how needy they were. This was and is true and remains true today. God, the creator, has made himself available to the people of earth. He's made himself available to you for the life that you're living. This help that he offers is more than just, you know, a free bus ticket or a walking stick. Hey, hope you make it safe. I'll keep the light on for you if you can find your way there. The help described here means acts of supplying what is needed in abundant measure. It means to support, to further the one being helped. We're talking more than just a simple guide here. You know, before the modern era, when people would take these long pilgrimages or these long trips, you think about people moving out west and those sorts of excursions, uh, those were really difficult, really hazardous. A lot of people didn't make it all the way. A lot of people didn't make it back. And so those sorts of trips were often supplied with a guide to help those who hadn't been before. They found someone who had taken the road once before a couple times, and they said, okay, now you go with them and kind of help show them the ropes. Think of how Sacagawea helped Lewis and Clark on their exploration. Sometimes those guides did a really great job, historically speaking. In 1843, for example, a missionary named Elijah White led a caravan of 100 wagons carrying 1,000 people down what we call the Oregon Trail. Oh, I loved the Oregon Trail video game when I was a kid on the old computers. They had the floppy disk of it. That thing was great. On the other hand, sometimes those guys didn't do so well. Uh, Lansford Hastings, for example, promised the 89 members of the Donner Party that he knew a shortcut to California. His shortcut was across the Great Salt Flats of Utah. And uh, that road trip ended about as badly as a road trip can end. And so the psalmist reminds us here that God is not simply a guy who took the trip last year and he kind of knows a little bit of the ropes and he knows, you know, where some decent camping spots are. He's the one who made the heavens and the earth. He's the one who placed the stars throughout the galaxies, not just randomly, but I was thinking about this this week. God 
took all of the stars that we can't even hope to number, and even still today with all the power of telescopes and satellites and things like that, they're still discovering new galaxies and new stars and new all kinds of things that we've never seen before. And we think of all of that and how God put them all in the sky. And I was thinking this week about how not only did God put them up there, he put them in such an arrangement so that from the vantage point of Earth, we could look up and see particular constellations for particular purposes. He put what we call the North Star in the sky in a particular position so that it would be a constant for us and for navigators throughout human history. You know, constellations speak of the glory of God and, and, and talk about the Lord in so, different sorts of ways. And you just think about the meticulous purposeful organization of the vast cosmos. And God said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to scatter an innumerable number of stars and I'm going to put them and arrange them in such a way so that little people on earth can look up into the night sky and see something about who I am, something about my goodness. It's not just a mash when we look up there. The more we look, the more we can learn about the Lord. That's an amazing thing to think about. The Bible says that he hangs the planets on nothing and keeps them in motion. He gives life to the universe. And why did he do all of that? It's one thing to be a being who can do all of that, but why did he do all of that? He did it so that he might interact with the first two humans on earth, Adam and Eve. He, he wanted to put a backdrop in place so that he could come down and walk with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. When, when creation was finished and the Lord looked and said, that's good, we're done. What did he do? He said, okay, so now let's put a couple people here that I can hang out with, that I can share myself with, that I can relate to and show my love to. And you know, the Lord put that universe in motion so that he can interact with you and me as well. This reminder is both humbling and invigorating. As we look at our surroundings or down the road of life, as we see mountains rising up right in front of us that we hadn't even noticed a minute ago, uh, we find ourselves thinking, man, I need help. I need help. I've got all of these pressures and all of these dangers or maybe these temptations or these trials that are facing me. I, I got to have some help. But this song reminds us immediately with the truth that not only will God help, but that God fashioned the entire cosmos so that he could love us, so that he could love you, so that he could express his care for your life to you individually. Our singer, seeing the mountains, takes the next step forward and he's still singing, right? He, he takes the next step forward in confidence, saying, man, look at that thing. How are we going to get over that thing? But he says, well, let's go because I've got help coming, coming from the creator of heaven and earth. Trials and temptations most certainly lay ahead. Things that the singer could not anticipate. Things that, you know, would be a surprise on one level or another. And yet he knew that God would not fail to help. In verse 3, the voice changes from I, my, to you, your. There are two people singing. What's going on here? Well, remember, the pilgrims were singing this as they went. And it was meant to prepare their hearts and to steal their resolve and to encourage them as they moved from tent to temple, as it were. And so uh, it seems best to see this as them singing to themselves or maybe with the caravan they were with, knowing what they know to be true, singing it to themselves as a reminder. This song is a great mixture of celebration and request of prayer and reminder. 
It's all of these things packaged together for us. Verse three says, he will not allow your foot to slip. Your protector will not slumber. God's providence extends to you. It's not just for the great moments of human history or the the wide swaths of God's plan. You know, we read in the Bible about how God raises up a kingdom and puts down kingdoms. And we think, okay, yeah, I understand that. But that same powerful providence is being worked out in your life as well. After all, God crafted you in your mother's womb. He knit you together by hand. Sometimes we, you know, there are, there are different products and the ones that are factory made are sometimes, uh, you know, less expensive than the same thing that is handmade. Guitars are a good example. I'm a guitar player. And so, you know, if, if you have a guitar that's handmade, that one is usually seen to be, you know, of higher quality and of, you know, uh, more value and those sorts of things. God handmade you in your mother's womb. And then beyond that, it says that he has numbered the hairs of your head. His providence extends to your life individually as much as it extends to the great movements of human history and the kingdoms that rise and fall and those sorts of things. He has prepared a path for your life so that you can discover the good works that he has set before you individually. God doesn't love you or know you in a generic sense. Uh, He knows you personally. He knows you more than you know yourself. He knows you more than anyone else in your life. And he loves you to a greater degree than anyone else ever could. We've come here to a phrase, though, that we should reconcile. Is this song telling us the truth? I've sprained my ankle after all. I'm sure you guys have too. And more importantly, many around us right now are enduring suffering much greater than the slip of a foot. All of us know people who are uh, struggling with difficulties and trials and hurts, maybe terminal illnesses. All of us know people who have lost their fight to things like cancer and heart disease and those sorts of things. So what's going on here? What about this promise? God, if you gave me this song, why are you telling me that my foot's not going to slip when clearly we uh, encounter real suffering and real difficulty in this life? Eugene Peterson writes this, At no time is there the faintest suggestion that the life of faith exempts us from difficulties. What it promises is preservation from all the evil in them. That's what promised to us in the scriptures, that God will sustain us, that God will complete the work that he began, that he will keep us. In fact, there's something that we lose when the song is taken from Hebrew into English. Uh, Whoever wrote this song did uh, worked hard to use the same word six times in this short little song. It's the word for keep or keeper. It's used over and over again six times in five verses. And the Lord God is our keeper and he will keep us, we're told. He will not get tired of performing that gracious work. He won't let anything slip through his hands. Even the greatest keeper in the soccer sense, right? We think of a goalkeeper. Uh, Even the greatest keeper can't stop every ball from going through. Some will slip through his hands, slip through his fingers, bounce off. Not so with the Lord. He's going to keep us no matter what. And so on the physical level, we may twist our ankle walking down the steps today or stepping into the car. That's just part of the sin-ruined world. You know, human beings, we're the ones that spilled the milk. 
And now God has been working throughout human history through providence and through his power and through his grace to make right what we have done wrong. And so while we are, uh, we find ourselves in a reality and in, uh, that is ruined by sin and embodies a flesh that are breaking down and ultimately will die one day, God is on record promising that he will not allow our enemies to overcome us and he will not allow temptation to overwhelm us. The singer looking at these mountains, maybe he was worried about uh, trials or difficulties or dangers ahead. Maybe he was worried about temptation of these pagan shrines. The Lord says, I'm not going to allow those things to break you. I'm not going to allow those things to overcome you. If you walk with me, I have all the keeping that you need to make it through. Verse four says, indeed, the protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. The longest recorded time of sleeplessness in humans is 264 hours. That's 11 days. Sounds terrible. But even then, uh, toward the end there, of course, the subject was experiencing significant cognitive and behavioral problems due to lack of sleep. Doctors say after 24 hours of no sleep, your brain starts doing some pretty weird things and you start having a breakdown of being able to uh, interpret reality in one way or another. But not so with our Lord. He never tires of his work. He never tires of us. He never looks down as an exasperated father and says, man, I just need a break from these people. I, I, just, I, I just need like 20 minutes. I need 20 minutes of me time and then I'll get back to helping you with your problems. That's not what the Lord does. It's a very good thing that our Lord stays awake and attentive to us, to the nations of this world. There's a realm around us that we cannot see, a spiritual realm where a war is raging. There are strains and pressures that exist around the clock on our lives and on the world and on nations. Even when we need to sleep, just because you and I go to sleep at night doesn't mean the problems of the world go to sleep at night, right? What hope would we have if we had no sleepless help from heaven? If our God needed to take naps. Ancient writings indicate that Baal, the God, uh, was a sleepy God. He needed to take naps sometimes. And so in order to rouse him from his sleep, you know, his, you know, people who followed Baal had to do all kinds of weird pagan stuff. This is why Elijah made fun of them at that one point uh, in his contest with the prophets of Baal. He says, hey, maybe Baal's asleep. You better, better figure out how to wake him up. And what were they doing? They were slashing themselves and doing all of this weird stuff. Imagine if our God was like that. Oh, God's taking a nap. Man, I don't know if he knows about COVID because he's probably <laughs> sleeping right now. And we laugh about it, but it's sad that this is part of the human way of thinking about God, right? It wasn't just Baal. I was thinking about that Disney movie Moana. They, the whole point of the movie, the whole point of the quest is they're trying to get the heart of Tefiti back in place. Why? So that that God can no longer be angry, but that's so she can go to sleep and they can be at peace again. And uh, it's an interesting thing. It's a sad thing. I was reminded of a scene from the classic 1960s Disney movie, Swiss Family Robinson. The family had been marooned on a strange island, left to their own devices. There on the beach, they make a tiny little makeshift shelter at first. The wife and the boys are sleeping after a long day of trying to get uh, from the shipwreck to the shore. The father is there on the sand, desperately trying to stay awake, musket in hand. He knows they're in trouble, but he's exhausted. He keeps nodding off. And the truth is, was they were in trouble because then they pan over and there in the brush and a couple hundred yards away is a Bengal tiger getting ready to pounce. He wants to eat him up. And of course, pirates are sailing around. And it's true. Yeah, they were in trouble. 
And if they all fell asleep, no one was there to keep the watch. But not so with the Lord. We're not left on our own like the Robinsons in that scene, stranded on a beach to our own devices. God takes the watch of your life. And he never says, okay, I'm going on break. Okay, I, I, somebody else needs to tap in for a few minutes here. He's our keeper. He watches over us. He's always ready, keeping watch, keeping us. Verse 5 says, the Lord protects you. The Lord is a shelter by your right side. The pilgrim, concerned about the path ahead, comes to a wonderful realization here. He's looking down the road. He says, okay, I'm going to meet with God. I've got some mountains in my way here. I'm kind of concerned about that, concerned about what that means and the difficulties I'm going to face. And then look at this wonderful realization. The Lord is already there beside him. He's not walking alone in that, well, when I get to Jerusalem, then I'll be with God. He says, well, man, the Lord is right with me right now. He hasn't been walking alone the whole time. The Lord is by his side and not just walking with him, but the Lord's been by his side doing his work, being a shelter, being a shield, being a help, being a guide. The Lord is there with him. What sort of protective work does the Lord promise to us? You know, as Christians in the church age, The physical blessings of God's covenant with Israel don't apply to us. God had some amazing physical promises to the nation of Israel there in the Old Testament. He said, hey, if you'll go my way, if you'll follow my statutes, if you will honor me, you know, you're never going to have a miscarriage and you won't get sick and your crops will never fail. And all of these like really incredible, miraculous physical blessings. Now, those things do not apply to the church. The Bible and the New Testament most certainly does not teach that if you have real faith, you will always be healthy and you'll always be wealthy and everything will always go well for you on the physical plane. It doesn't teach that much to the contrary. So what protective work does God promise to us today? We hear some uh, references that speak specifically about God keeping us and protecting us. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.8, he will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. Galatians 5.10, I am trusting the Lord to keep you from believing false teachings. Revelation 3.10, Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world. Jude 24, the Lord is able to protect you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. God's protective work was not only for Jewish road trips. He walks with you today. He's still God with us. He's still a God of power. He's still a keeper of your life. Verse six says, the sun will not strike you by day or the moon by night. You know, from here on out, the song is going to make it a point in just great statements to ensure that we understand that God's got it covered. Day or night, hot or cold, beginning or end, the Lord is there. Morning, noon, and night, every place, every way. There is no trap door he isn't aware of that we might fall into while we walk with him. There is no complication of life that he hasn't considered or seen from before the foundations of the earth. He's got it all. Whether it's the heat of day or the cold of night, the Lord is able to meet our needs. This is demonstrated literally for us in a beautiful way when we read about how God's presence in the wilderness with the Israelites after the Exodus, his glory was a cloud by day to give them shade and fire by night to light the way. That's the kind of work that God does where he says, oh, it's dark here. Let me light the way for you. 
Uh, it's sunny, let me shade you. Uh, the Lord's not obtuse about what we need. He has known what we needed well before we ever encountered, encountered the need. Commentators talk about the dangers of the desert sun and the ancient belief that the light of the moon would make you insane. That's where the word lunatic comes from, by the way, lunacy, lunatic. And so the commentators get all into that. But really, in a general sense, the song is just reminding us of God's all-encompassing care for you. It reminds us that God cares about all of you, right? God doesn't just care about your spirit. He cares about your mind, your body, your soul. He cares about all of that. It doesn't mean he's always going to exempt us from physical suffering. Of course not. The Old Testament saints weren't even exempted from physical suffering. Every Old Testament saint died, even at the time of the writing of this psalm. But we see here just the the breadth of God's care for us in every circumstance, in every situation, in every type of strain, in every, you know, type of setting. The Lord is there and he knows and he is with us and God cares about all of it. Verse seven, the Lord will protect you from all harm. He will protect your life. One of the images of God's keeping and one of the, you know, descriptors that will come up if you look up this word in Bible dictionaries is of a hedge protecting uh, a person. And you've probably heard people pray that before. God put a hedge of protection around my life or around that individual. And this is where the idea comes from. That's the word that being used, that, that the Lord has constructed something around in order to, you know, shelter and shield and keep enemies at bay. I was reminded of Guardians of the Galaxy. The heroes are about to be killed toward the end there. And Groot, who's sort of made, he's kind of a tree guy, if you're not familiar with the movie. He's like a big walking tree dude. He's kind of made of living branches, but he can make his branches grow or contract. And he's kind of a neat guy. Uh, but they're all about to die or going to crash to earth and explode or whatever. And so Groot starts growing himself as a protective shell all around his friends. And his branches go all around them until they're in this shell. And they're going to be protected from the impact and protected from their enemies. And so he gives his life to keep them safe. And, you know, obviously that is a very small and, um, uh, you know, human attempt to describe the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ did for us, who gave himself at the cross so that we could be protected. He said to Jerusalem, what did, what did he want to do? He said, I wanted to bring you in under my wings like a mother hen and protect you and shield you. And God did that. He, he put himself on the cross and bore the weight of our sin and took on himself what we could never hope to withstand. We would never be able to withstand or survive the impact of our sin. And Christ Jesus said, I will put myself as a hedge around you. I will protect you from that. I will take the brunt of your sin so that you can live. And it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Not only an action of sacrifice, but an action of great power. And then God raised him from the dead in glorious power even more. And now we are his held safe in his hand as he continues the good work he began in each of us. And we are still hedged in his powerful love. Though bodily hurt is part of life on this side of eternity, we know that we cannot be snatched from the fold of God. Even in the Old Testament, you know, 
as people suffered, they understood though that God was watching over for them and, and keeping their lives. And so we recognize that this song is speaking here of something much deeper, something much more important than just spraining your ankle or, or, or getting lost in the hills around Judea. Psalm 66 says, our lives are in his hands and he keeps us from stumbling. Now, Paul said it this way in Romans 8, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? All things Paul encountered, by the way. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Verse 8, the Lord will protect your coming and going both now and forever. The setting of the song is a pilgrim on the road to the temple. But then, of course... They'd have to return home one day. They'd need the same help going to Jerusalem as they would going from Jerusalem, right? They'd have to pass those same mountains, those same dangers, those same temptations. Once home, they'd have other paths to take, lots of other paths, many comings and goings. And here we're reminded as the song comes to a close, God goes with you. And actually, he invites us to go with him. He's not just tagging along on whatever we want to do. He is come and revealed himself to us and says, hey, you follow me. Let's go together. I I prepared a path for you. I know the very destination for the very best thing for your life. You want to come with me? And as we follow after him, he is with us by our side. And that is a wonderful thing. We're to follow him as he leads us through life, knowing what is best for us, knowing perfectly well how to accomplish his good work in us as he keeps us. This tender, powerful care isn't just for uh, the worship service. It's not even just for this life, according to verse 8, but evermore. He will be our keeper. Evermore, he will be our shield, our faithful savior. There are a lot of different kinds of psalms when scholars categorize them. Praise psalms, lament psalms, royal psalms, psalms of thanksgiving. Often this one would be called a trust psalm in addition to being a song of ascent. That doesn't mean it's just wishful thinking. This song was given to God's people, both ancient and modern, to help remind us of what is actually true. What's really true. This doesn't take me out to the ball game, a sort of stylized, idealized, you know, fantasy song that doesn't really mean anything. I don't want to eat Cracker Jack and neither do you. You know why? Because it's gross. (laughs) But this is a song that's true. And we're told in Philippians chapter four, we need to think on things that are true. And in the context of this psalm, we need to especially do so when we're looking at the mountains that are foreboding and are dangerous mountains that are in our way. And we're thinking, where's my help going to come from? What what am I going to do? How can I ever get over those peaks? And this song tells us how looking at the world around us, looking down the road of life. We see a lot of dangers, a lot of uncertainty, but of this, we can be certain God is with us. He is our keeper. He isn't asleep on the job, but has all the care and all the power that we read about in his word. Eugene Peterson once again wrote this. Everyone who travels the road of faith requires assistance from time to time. We need cheering up when our spirits flag. We need direction when the way is unclear. Our Lord knows that we need all sorts of safeguards and equipment for the demands of life. So he gives us what is necessary. He packs it up for us. He, in our packs, he says, okay, you're going to need my grace if you're going to go on this trip. And 
Here, you're going to need my word to light your way. And here, you're going to need my peace. Here, you're going to need my Holy Spirit. And he also says, you're going to need some songs when you go. I'm going to give you a bunch of songs to sing. Not inane or unrealistic songs, but songs that expound the truths of our God, which will not only bring us cheer, but will help us correct course when necessary. They are a mixture of request and reminder that God is not unconcerned. He is deeply attentive in every phase and every circumstance of our lives. And so the comfort of this song can be a melody in our hearts, not just once a year like happy birthday, not one particular type of situation like Auld Lang Syne, but it can be like that song that played during the credits of the old Lamb Chop show. Do you remember that? This is the song that doesn't end. Yes, it goes on and on, my friends. Some people started singing and not knowing what it was, and they'll continue singing it forever just because, right? This is a song that doesn't end. This is a song for us to sing every day as we travel toward the new Jerusalem. And just in passing, I would be remiss if I didn't say this. There's someone listening at home or on the archive or even here in the room. If you're not a child of God, if you're not a pilgrim, meaning if in in the New Testament biblical sense, if you haven't been born again, then, then you're not a child of God. You're not a pilgrim. And the hand that holds his people safe as the hand is going to judge you. The weight of your sin is still on your shoulders. And the penalty for sin is death. And if that's you, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ and called out to him for mercy and for salvation, you can do so. Look at Psalm 120. You can just let your eyes drift upward. And And the person who looks around and realizes, man, I am far from God, calls out to God in belief and repentance, and is immediately answered by him. And so if you today are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you can't say, yes, I am a pilgrim on my way home to heaven, then you need to call out to God, believing that Jesus Christ is who he said he was, that he lived and died and rose again, and that he will save you from your sins if you will turn to God in belief and repentance. For the rest of us, apply these truths to your hearts. Remember that the Lord is our ever-present help. And as Virgil wrote long ago, let us go singing as far as we go. The road will be less tedious.